Hello listeners, the water all around us is living, connective, deep, and unassuming as non-parametric stats. Don't be afraid to tell it your secrets. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone, I'm Jess. And I'm Catherine, and welcome to Across the Cline, the podcast where we explore the unusual ways we can meet in the middle. Hi, everyone. We are super excited today to have two guests talking about models and statistics and seeking truth from both an Indigenous and artist perspective and a statistical perspective. So we have Michael Blackstock and Jeff Ellis with us today. So we'll let them introduce themselves. Do you want to start out, Michael? Thank you. Uh, this uh, good day, prince and princesses is the kind of literal translation of that Gitsan introduction I just did. Um, I like that, uh, uh, kind of elevates our uh, everybody to the same level. Everyone's a prince and princess in, in the Gitsan world. Um, yeah, my name is Michael Blackstock. My Gitsan name is Amagorum Get. I'm uh, a member of the Gitsan Nation, which is located in northwest British Columbia, uh, around the uh, towns of Hazleton, New Hazleton, Kispiox, Kitmancool, Gitsagutla. Uh, our traditional territory is, is uh, sort of bisected by two rivers, the uh, Skeena River and the Bulkley River. And the translation of our nation name, the Gitsan Nation, is people of the river of mist. So we're a riverine people. Um, uh, and uh, rely on the salmon. And I'm going to talk about a story called the Salmon Prince, which is one of our oral histories and, and teachings about nature uh, later on in this in this podcast. Uh, one of, my chief uh, is Chief Gale. Uh, the person that holds that name right now is m- my cousin Kathy. And previous to that, my mentor... Uh, artistic mentor and teacher uh, Walter Harris held the name Chief Gale, and yeah, I'm an, uh, a Gitan artist uh, trained by Walter. And uh, in the training, we learn about the the strict rules of uh, the Northwest Coast uh, art form. And once we learn those rules, and uh, the teacher. Um, through through practices that we we know them, releases us into create creativity. And uh, one of my uh, Walter's uh, artist friends, Phil Janzi, who was an excellent artist as well, he described it that you're learning the rules and you squeeze through the pinhole 
out into the light of creativity once you learn those rules. So from an artistic perspective, you know, we're, we really are strictly trained, but once we are, we're released within that world to, to uh, be creative as possible. And so I express my creativity through, through carving and paintings and do photography and also a poet, which really I think of as a storyteller, a short storyteller, really, uh, as a poet. Um, in my, uh, my uh, dad was Gitsan and my mom, uh, she's Austro-Hungarian descent. So I, I live in two worlds, brought up in two worlds. Um, in the, uh, in the Western world, I was trained as a professional forester. So did my bachelor's science in forestry. And then, uh, I did my master of arts and first nation studies after that. So, yeah, I have experience in, in both worlds and still a student, very much a student in both worlds. And in my professional career, I became a negotiator, negotiating agreements between governments and First Nations. And so got trained in mediation. And, and uh, I think that's a good, uh, a mediator is a good metaphor for who I am. I, I mediate between worlds, go back and forth. So I need to understand uh, both worlds be to mediate and translate from one to the other. I live at Pavilion Lake. That's where I'm talking to you right now. Pavilion Lake, British Columbia, Canada. Uh, it's one of the few lakes in the world that has freshwater coral. It was studied by NASA for about 10 years, and they believe that this coral is one of the first life forms on Earth. So I'm very passionate about water. That's why I live here. And I just recently built a house here building on my, using my values around nature. So it's a passive energy house and tried to repurpose a lot of the building materials sort of scrounging around on Facebook marketplace, looking for stuff. And rather than buying new, um, yeah, trying to live my values out here. So yeah, I've had the great fortune of, uh, of uh, meeting Jess um, almost a year ago now in Vancouver. And, and we have, uh, come up with some great ideas between the two of us, interweaving our thoughts and ideas to come up with a, a draft journal paper that we've, we've submitted, um, looking at interweaving Western science and Indigenous knowledge together. And, and so, yeah, it's been a great honor to, to work with her. Um, so, yeah, those are a few of the things. I, I guess one of the things I should mention is that I spent four years on the UNESCO's uh, expert advisory panel on water and cultural diversity. Um, and that the reason they invited me was the research work that I did on blue ecology. It's a uh, ecological theory that I developed uh, in partnership with uh, indigenous elders in British Columbia. And essentially, it looks at the uh, Western definition of water, the indigenous definition of water, and in combines them or interweaves them into a new ecological philosophy that shows reference for the spirit of water and also draws upon the technical expertise of Western science and hydrology and ecology to create a new water first approach to environmental planning and 
Um, it also has become a springboard for creating uh, a new nonprofit uh, that I'm a co-founder of called the uh, Blue Ecology Institute Foundation, which we're going to use to teach uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous youth about the sensing the spirit of nature based on the principles of Indigenous teachings and some of the strengths of Western science. So yeah, that's a bit about me. Uh, it's great to be with you folks today. Thank you, Michael. That was an awesome introduction. I, I think we're going to have a good interweaving conversation. <laughs> so <laughs> go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, hi, uh, I'm Jeff. I am a fifth year PhD student here at UC Riverside in the statistics department. And uh, my research currently focuses on developing new statistical tools. Um, in general, uh, a lot of science, almost all of science uses statistical tools in order to measure how much uncertainty is present in the data that's in the world we measure around us. So statistical um, approaches typically employ models in order to measure these uncertainties. And um, in order to do that, oftentimes we uh, make assumptions about the world, about how we think it works, and we test hypotheses. So in doing that, there's many different ways that you can conduct statistical models on the world. And I focus on models that try to reduce the amount of assumptions we make about the world or about our data before we apply um, an idea or concept that we want to measure onto it. So this field's called uh, non-parametric statistics specifically. A lot of my research, I guess I would say, is focused more towards uh, medical applications, although uh, it's generalizable to many different fields. Um, so in, in particular, the research I do is focusing how to make statistics and modeling a little bit more personable and to avoid lumping people into singular groups that we take averages on. Thank you both for being here with us today. Um, and we're super excited to have both of you, Michael and Jeff. So um, I guess uh, something that I see sort of between both uh, what the two of you have worked on is kind of the idea of assumptions, right? Like um, sort of the foundation of blue ecology, blue ecology, Michael, is challenging the assumption that water isn't alive and well, Jeff, statistics has so many assumptions. So I'm wondering what is like, what are good and bad things about assumptions and where can we be really wrong about assumptions and how do we try to fix that? That's a great question, Catherine. I, I've spent a lot of time during my research uh, with elders on water uh, on that. Um, I'll start off with my general conclusion about, about assumptions is that assumptions are very helpful when you're building models because you have to kind of narrow the scope of, of uncertainty in the world to something that you can work within a model and kind of work through and create, you know, pick your variables and, and create and, and be explicit about your assumptions. Which I which I'm learning is hard to do because the assumptions are very cagey and amorphous. They're almost like tricksters, and I'll be talking about trickster a lot. Is that uh, 
it's hard to recognize an assumption, um, but they're definitely there. And and I guess in in my own learning over since I was a child, I I kind of always would couldn't move my thinking past um, a new idea until I really understood the foundation and the assumptions in the foundation. Uh, I found, found that in ecology when I was uh, at university studying forestry. We had a forest ecology course, and and uh, I didn't do well in that course initially, uh, just because I, as I when I grew up, you know, with the kind of the teachings of my parents around nature, the concept of nature that I understood and the one that was described in ecology didn't match up, and I got stuck on why and which one was right and. Um, that kind of flowed through into my research with uh, water is that the elders were very concerned about how humans were treating nature and they used the example of water and they would say that water has a spirit and that we should treat water like our mother or grandparents as part of the family and then they were concerned that uh, humans were not respecting and showing not water and not showing it the respect that they thought it would deserved when i looked at science's assumptions around water i had to dig because it wasn't really entirely explicit the assumption and that's again that's back to my trickster amorphous kind of description of assumptions they're they can be hard to really figure out. And so I looked at the definition of uh, an ecosystem, for example, as a community of living organisms supported by the physical environment. That's, a, that's an example of a definition. So what are the assumptions in that definition, specifically to water? So it talks about a community of living organisms and it talks about the physical environment. So which one would science put water in? So I had to dig through that. And um, basically science's assumption is that water is in the non-living physical environment and that water is there to support the community of living organisms. Whereas in Western, where indigenous, it's, it's water central to the ecosystem it's the heart, it's the blood that's being pumped through the whole living network of organisms. And living in the First Nations definition is much broader than the definition of living in Western science. You know, a rock can be a woman that was frozen by a trickster or... Um, or a shaman into a rock, for example. So uh, rocks can be living, water's living. So yeah, we look at that definition of an ecosystem and then dig through it and try and find out what the assumptions are there. And then if that is the assumption, what are the implications of that assumption? If we don't understand our assumptions, 
then it's like rust. Rust can sink a metal ship slowly over time if we don't address it or, or know it's there. And part of my role is to, as a, that the elders have, the responsibility that the elders have given me is to be able to look at these foundational assumptions and try and figure a way to weave together a world where both can exist and yeah so that's it's it's a it's a very important concept assumptions and then i don't think it's ever too late to examine assumptions um and especially in a time of crisis that we're in now we should we should revisit key foundational assumptions um and uh move on from there and i'll also be talking today about the concept of humility it takes someone that's humble to be able to go back and look at a system like like western science and re-examine foundational assumptions and if it is robust system then it will survive the adjustment to assumptions like changing the definition of water from an abiotic entity to a biotic entity so yeah, that's my that's my view of that. That's a great question. Yeah, th those are really interesting ideas. I think Michael mentioned about um, the problem of assumptions, and I, I think too a key thing that he touched on was that um, I think, and tell me if you agree or not, Michael, but I, I think that we kind of almost. Uh, need some form or some number of assumptions to really do anything. The The world around us is so beautiful and infinite in its complexity that in order for us to give anything form, especially through language, we have to first have some sort of boundary or, mm -hmm. or concept that we can capture ideas into in order to talk about that and communicate those with people around us. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in, Forming those boundaries, it also forms uh, whatever it is we're able to see, whether that's like what you're saying with water, science treating it as this extractive thing for living things versus the indigenous perspective of treating it as a thing central to things, changes how you interact and, and work with, with water. Um, and in a similar sense, this also happens in statistics too, and, and in mathematics is the assumptions of what we believe to be the structure of the world influences how we um, process and interpret data, which we then use to try to make truth statements about the world. So, for example, in, in uh, the field of non-parametric statistics that I'm in, um, a common assumption that we are constantly, or a, a common assumption that's made that non-parametric statisticians, my question often is whether things are um, truly homogenous, if things are truly independent from one another. Um, a really common assumption in statistics is that things are normally distributed because um, we, and that we can unpack too what that means, but essentially these core assumptions format how we search for truth um, when we employ science and gather data and then use statistics to measure the uncertainty. So depending on which of those assumptions you just assume are true will determine how you interpret your data and how truth might arise from the data from your perspective. 
Um, but whether or not that's actually in line with reality can sometimes be investigated when you find out an assumption you made isn't actually true in the first place. Um, if that was done in a follow-up study, let's say. So in non-parametrics, oftentimes we like to drop as many of those assumptions as possible and create models that are more flexible, um, less constrained in form in order to uh, not impose assumptions on the model. Um, but there's never an, an assumptionless model um, in statistics or mathematics in general. There's always some structure and form that has to be um, um, put on things. So, um, and then an, another idea I also had too was whether um, the very thing that all statisticians work with probability um, is the old, probably the ultimate assumption in our field. Um, we have definitions for probability that are based in theoretical mathematics. Uh, we use the word probability in our day-to-day -day lives as non-statisticians and statisticians. We think it's probable it'll rain today, but like what that word actually means and the very thing that we actually generate in statistics um, kind of is a not very defined in the real world. It doesn't really have a form that is um, concretely nailed down. So that's maybe the ultimate assumption in statistics is the very probabilities that we use to generate in our field itself. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with the, the need for assumptions. It's just like net defining a scope that you can actually work with, right? Because the world is so complex and there's so many relationships out there between things that so somehow we have to narrow our scope to be able to start. And I think as, as we are, our, our responsibility uh, and elders talk about this a lot is once you are gain knowledge, you, you gain responsibility. Um, and like, for example, when I'm doing research and interviewing elders sort of ethnographic research methodologies, um, they'll say, yes, you know, once they trust me, that's the first thing because they've had bad experiences with researchers. Once they trust me, then they say, you know, yeah, I'll share this information, but you, you have a responsibility to do something about it. And that's what they'll always say. What are you going to do about it? And, uh, so what they're meaning is, is as you gain knowledge, you also gain responsibility to, to help, uh, because you're, you've got this knowledge. So, um, there's a humility that comes with that. And I see assumptions as an expression of humility. Um, being explicit upfront about what your assumptions are and not just your, your stock routine expected assumptions. Um, you know, assuming this data, data is, you know, normally distributed, for example, you know, stochastic or deterministic, all those kinds of things. But have, spending the extra time to dig deeper into what your own biases are uh, and what assumptions might emerge from that, I think there's a responsibility. And then just to express it and just, you know, I think being humble about our, our, uh, <clears throat> our place in the world and nature. And uh, so, yeah, that responsibility to really express our explicitly express assumptions is, is super important. Um, yeah. 
And I think like something, you know, what's what's important with assumptions is that like they're foundational to models, right? And so it, you know, it it it's it begs the question of like um sort of what what are we doing when we're making models? And I'm curious, like from your perspective and Jeff's perspective, like um what use models do have like is it about being able to predict things in the world is it about understanding your relationality to things and nature and how to be responsible members like you know like how do you see models and the role of assumptions like in those models are they to simplify things are they to make them more complex like what what are y'all's thoughts there and i just want to jump in kind of tacking this on to jess but um like I was just thinking about how so much of our lives are based on assumptions. We go to bed assuming there will be a tomorrow. The sun will rise and I have to go to work. Um, and in a sense, kind of planning our lives is like making a model on the assumption that there is going to be tomorrow and the day after tomorrow and so on. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Like, uh, you know, for example, it's like with all this, and I'm speaking to you from British Columbia, Canada right now, where we've had a terrible wildfire season. And just the ability to plan within this chaos of climate change, it's really decreasing, you know, it's really, I, I, <clears throat> nature is, nature uh, from our gets in worldview or gets in you know, model of the world, you might say, is that nature is retaliating. Uh, she has had enough of the disrespect. And she's throwing our world into chaos as a result. And just like you say, we're waking up tomorrow, assuming that I can drive from here to Kamloops to get my groceries. There's a big assumption right now because there's so many wildfires that can that have, like literally cut off my access to different places and and you know there's evacuation orders and alerts and this whole world this model that we've been working on of what the world should be and how it behaves is really being challenged by mother nature right now and this might be the time i guess to talk about this story um that's a key teaching in the gets in uh oral histories for and that's um there's two of them i'll uh, I've done paintings of, uh, of both of these, but I'm going to talk about the salmon prince. The other one is the mountain goat, one horn mountain goat story. It has a similar story, uh, but the salmon prince one, I did a painting of it. And basically the story is, is there's this village, get, uh, it gets in village by our river, the Skeena river, uh, where the salmon, sockeye salmon and, come and uh, come up and spawn every year and we have a ceremony welcoming them to our territory each year but the story goes is there's this little boy that was playing by the river as the spawning salmon were swimming by and he would throw rocks at them and poke them in the eye as they're kind of spawning and coming to the end of their life and showing them really disrespect like these salmon have swam from the ocean giving all their energy for the last gasp of their life and there's this little boy poking at them as they as they die and very disrespectful 
Um, so the Prince of the Salmon world had had enough of this. And in our, in our model of the world, um, there is multiple worlds coexisting at the same time. So, for example, the salmon in the salmon people's world, they look like humans. In our world, they look like the salmon, the fish that we know. So the salmon prince in his world transformed himself into the fish and came into our world. And he swam up the river to where the little boy was on the bank. And he kidnapped him. And the way he did that was he put a rock in his the, the, the uh, little boy's mouth that would protect him as he transformed or made the transition from the human world into the salmon world. So he had to protect him. And um, in the show notes, you'll see the painting where the little boy is in the belly of the salmon prince and he's got something in his mouth and that rock is there to protect that boy as he makes the journey from our world to the salmon world. So when he gets to the salmon world, he sees all these people uh, that are would be salmon in his world, but they're they look like people in this in the salmon world. And he sees this this uh, old woman who's blind, and the salmon prince says to the little boy, "You see that blind woman." You made her blind. You poked a stick in her eye and you made her blind. Did you see that man walking with the cane who has a broken leg? You made him like that through your disrespect. And I brought you here to see what your behavior, how it's affecting our people. It's my job as a chief to protect my people and I'm showing you what you're doing. So the little boy was crying and he realized what his actions have done to those people. And the salmon prince was, was um, assured that this boy would not do these bad things to the salmon anymore. So he took him back to our world. So in that story, there's a lot of things going on where salmon are equal to us. There, there is no hierarchy or Linnaeus animal kingdom kind of model in the Gitan world. So the animal kingdom hierarchy model does not exist in our, we're all equals, we're all connected, we're all living. Um, and there's also the concept of multiple worlds existing at the same time, but they are connected, these worlds, the behavior in one world can affect something in another world. So when we get to statistics, we, uh, Jeff and I have talked about this idea of multiple truths or you know, deterministic models versus stochastic models and where multiple truths can coexist. Um, so, this story is kind of a doorway to a lot of different things. And I have in the painting, the painting of water, where it's it's meant to be very lively in the painting, the water. 
And it's actually inspired by the Maori art. I, I use the Maori kind of representation of water there because I like how lively or alive the water looks. Again, I'm, I'm showing the message that I think water is, has a spirit and is alive. It's not this dead physical resource or commodity that Western world describes it as. So the story, although fairly simple, is actually very complex. And that's just what I learned about when I did my research around water. I, my research question was something that I thought was very simple. The research question is, what is water? But it became highly complex because um, both Western science and the indigenous view of the world is, is complex. Um, and I have a, uh, Jeff and I had a conversation, I think, uh, uh, a few weeks ago. And one of the things that I kept thinking about a Jeff and I's conversation that Jeff kind of inspired me to think about is that if we look at a spectrum where statistics where you have something on one end of the spectrum, you know, models that have a high probability of produce some produce something that I guess would have a low low occurrence of type one type two error on on one side where we we're very confident in our models we um, we've narrowed the scope so much that we're it's highly predictive and then on the other end of the, the spectrum we have sort of a more stochastic kind of view of the world. Um, where multiple truths can exist, um, where the scope of our models is very wide, thus multiple outcomes can happen at the same time in multiple worlds and multiple time frames. So though on those two ends of the spectrum, if we were to have interweave indigenous knowledge with Western science, we would be moving towards the spectrum where we would use the tools of statistics that describe a story with multiple outcomes in a more stochastic world, you know, non-parametric world, um, which is to say all the tools of statistics are very valid. It's just how we apply them and what our assumptions are again in the models that we have. So, yeah, I was wondering what Jeff thought of that about the use of statistics to tell a story rather than trying to strive for that that predictive quality with high probability of success. Right. The, the, there's a lot of great things that you mentioned in there, and I, I really appreciated the, the story of the, the Sam and Fritz, too, to interweave a lot of those ideas together. I think um, the, the first uh, idea I have on that, like, spectrum of different statistical tools you mentioned michael was the you know one on one end you uh described hypothesis testing where we make a a binary decision on whether a model um can be continued to be believed in or if that model should be updated to an alternative model about the reality of the world around us and then on the other end you, you mentioned um like stochastic models or basically models with more complexity inherently being built into uh, the statistical infrastructure, if you will, about how we think um, systems and truths interact in the world. 
Um, so like on that spectrum, there is, I think they, a spectrum of like model complexities that scientists might explore for their particular sets of data there. And the, the question is always hard for scientists and statisticians who build the models for them. Um, it's always this question of like how much complexity is uh, appropriate for a given situation. Um, it's inherently easier to gather data for simpler models to force things into binary situations and run hypothesis tests on those. Um, but oftentimes we have to make a lot of assumptions to force the world to be so simple and to be expressed so easily. Um, so there, there's, uh, there's a lot of growing interest to go more towards the complex side of things, to try to account for more complexities, to have less assumptions um, align around. And I, I think that's a really, really beautiful thing because um, the world is really complex around us. And um, I think the narratives it, it tells sometimes can be a little bit more challenging. Um, so for example, um, if I smooth over smaller truths with a bigger overarching truth, um, I might be able to make grand statements about, you know, from data, I might be able to make statements about very large overarching trends, um, such as um, the average temperature is increasing by so many degrees Celsius per year in some sort of climate model per se. Um, but that might ignore more complex nuances that are happening at smaller scales that aren't being accounted for by that simple statement that I made. So um, I, I can, you know, climate scientists do this and they account for smaller truths at different scales in order to make statements about bigger truths at larger scales. So they're constantly looking at microclimate changes throughout the seasons, um, accounting for historical records of, of climate and so on and so forth. I'm not a climatologist, but these are some of the things that they might be thinking about. And uh, they use that to build up a more complex metaphor about how they believe the world is working through data, which I think is the best way to summarize modeling in general is, is the metaphor being used determines how complex of ideas there are that you explore as a scientist or as a statistician building the metaphors. Um, and that determines um, how you find and discover truth in those models. So I, I think um, I, I definitely personally work in trying to create more complex models and non-parametrics, trying to have models that don't force um, forms and assumptions onto the data that then allow the data to generate their own truths from those things. Um, from their own inherent properties rather than forcing a property onto the data itself. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, go ahead, Jess. Oh, well, I was, Jeff, Jeff has talked about before sort of going between like, yeah, letting the data speak for itself, then building a model, then going back that like bi-directional mm -hmm. feedback. Do you want to just speak a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's, that's a really good point. Yeah. The, the, direction of which we build the model could be really important too. Um, so um, in like one structure of, of modeling, you can just assume a form, go look for that form in the data, and then it either matches or it doesn't match the form that you initially hypothesize about. In non-parametrics, we um, first allow the data to speak on its form here. 
And when we talk about form and statistics, it can be a little bit complex to nail down exactly what we're interested in, but it's essentially the properties that influence probability take on certain characteristics on what happens on average or what we expect to happen most commonly and um, events that are highly rare or sometimes called outliers in this case here. Um, the properties that determine what makes an outlier and what makes an event highly likely or expected um, can be measured um, and inferred from either the data in a non-parametric sense or um, imposed on it and then estimated in a parametric sense. So putting assumptions on what that form can look like. So yeah, that process of kind of going to the data first to elicit the form back to the model to uh, generate probabilities and then uh, communicating that through, I think descriptive statistics, for example, could be um, a process in which a statistician um, relates to the world um, using data and, and modeling. Mm, yeah. I was thinking, uh, Jess, Jess has always, you know, prompted me with a very good question that I keep coming back to is what's the relationship between a metaphor and a model? Um, I'm slowly getting there. Uh, one of the, one of the, uh, the linkages, I think, between a model and a metaphor is the desire to tell a story. And we use metaphors to communicate and tell stories. And what I'd like to encourage is if, if Western science can do its good job of measuring, testing hypotheses, um, observing, um, doing that, but moving beyond it to asking how, what story is emerging for me as the, as the researcher about whatever I'm looking at. Now I'll give you the, give you an example. Go back to the story that I just told about the salmon prints. Imagine a scientist there trying to figure out what's going on. They're recording how many rocks the little boy threw, the species of the stick that he picked up, the the, uh, the speed of the river flowing by, the water temperature, the the weather that day the age of the boy looking at all this data is that story going to emerge that's what i want to ask the researcher what story are you looking at uh, and don't be afraid to tell a story you might be right you might be wrong but you're the one that's doing all this study that's connected to this particular subject matter and i believe there's a responsibility on the part of the researcher to tell that story just like the elders are saying, what are you going to do about it? Like, how does your research connect to the world? And how can it help the world through this crisis? Um, and what story do you see? I, I'm curious about your story that you see, because you're, you're intimately involved in this particular research topic. And what tools can you use? Like, Jeff, you know, you know you're interested in this area about, you know, I, I think of you having a desire to tell tell stories of complexity and relationships rather than being locked into more deterministic kind of world right where there's one answer one truth um, but it there's something that 
a phrase I coined in the paper that Jess and I have worked on, and that's the tricksters, tricksters inverse schema law, which basically means that our desire to be very predictive makes we create a very narrow world with a whole host of assumptions to get us to this narrow world. And when we create this very narrow world, we're really good at predicting because it's there's we remove all the variables and uncertainty so we can get something that's very predictive. But but how useful is it? You know, if we open up our models to the idea that there is going to be more uncertainty, that there is going to be more multiple truths, um, then the trickster won't have a field day with your model because you're kind of moving towards the, the um, moving towards something that's more like real life. And I, I'll give you another example where, in my mind. I go, but you know, I'm, you know, I'm remember I'm thinking of the very foundational level here because I got stuck here. But I think of there's human created systems like a computer model or a computer or a bridge, and then there's systems, natural systems, you know, like a river, or wildfires, or the climate. Humans are quite good at creating predictive models about human-created systems. And we get pretty arrogant because they're usually quite right. And then we try and bring that arrogance over into natural systems. And we're not very good at it. We really aren't. I'll give you an example of that. I had a teaching very recently about humility and what I being. I was humbled by some loons a few nights ago and what the model in my mind about loons and nature kind of got shattered because I was just too arrogant about my, my uh, understanding what I thought was going on in the natural world. And now I was, I was, I go swimming and, you know, summertime and right by the lake, I go swimming once a day and, there's two loons that I, I swim with. They just, once I'm in the water, they, they, they don't mind me at all. Like I can swim right up to them and they just circle around me fishing and calling and, and, uh, they're quite comfortable with me and I'm comfortable with them. And so every day I go out there and most days they're there in this little area because it's good fishing. And so I'm swimming a couple of days ago and I, I look and there's the two loons. You know, I just, I think of them as friends now, basically. And I'm about 10 meters away from them. That's about the distance that they like to, to swim around me. They get about that close. And I see one dive down. It comes up with a quite a big fish. Like, I was like, wow, that's impressive. Good catch. I was like going to him. And then it's kind of struggling with it because it's such a big fish. And then he dives under the water again with this fish in the mouth, comes back up. Oh, he must be trying to kill it or something before he eats it. I was thinking, comes back up and he spits it out. Oh, that's weird. It must have been too big or something. And and then this fish, because of all what it's been through, just kind of goes belly up. It's still alive, but it's floating belly up in the water with one fin kind of finning around. And I'm like, 
uh, why aren't you eating the fish you just caught? Like, it's just no fish kind of swimming around for a minute or two minutes. And I was just like, and I see the loon going back fishing. It's fishing again. Like, it's not touching this big fish it just caught. And I, I couldn't figure it out. And then this eagle swoops down over my head, like must have been two or three feet over my head, picks up that fish and takes off. I knew in that moment, in all those circumstances, that loon caught that fish for the eagle. I'd always thought of them as being mortal enemies. Like I've, I've seen eagles chasing ducks and I've seen loons kind of being agitated by the presence of an eagle. But those loons in that moment, they didn't blink an eye. They didn't call out. They were quite comfortable with that eagle. And I'm sure that that loon caught a fish for that eagle. It shattered my model of, of you know, predator-prey model. Um, they're collaborating. And uh, it was fascinating to me. Yeah, it's really interesting to see how the, the structure of the metaphor of your old model had to update to a new model of cooperation once you mm -hmm. were seeing things in the world that didn't fit in, in the previous paradigm. Um, exactly. But, yeah, yeah. And, and, um, and yeah, in statistics too, that happens as well, where we we're trying to see like the structure of what how things are relating in particular systems. So um, for example, like a really common tool used in statistics is called uh, linear regression, where we're trying to see how one variable changes with a whole host of other variables. And we think there's some relationality between all these variables to that one outcome there, that outcome variable. Um, and informing this structure of relationality, it, it determines what metaphors we can say about the system, um, about how certain things can be predictive of that variable of interest, that outcome variable there. And um, oftentimes, yeah, we need to, you know, gather data in order to like test these assumptions that we have about the world. We're going out there imposing a structure and then we're trying to test to see if those structures truly do exist in the world as plausible truths to investigate. Um, and uh, we gather data that sometimes can be for or against those structures there. So it can be kind of confusing because some data points suggest that the, the metaphor and the structure is potentially true. And then other data might suggest that it's completely false. So it's kind of like this scale where you, you put data on different sides of the scale and you allow the scale to tip either way as you accumulate more and more data before you say, well, the data is leaning more towards the structure is true or, or potentially false kind of thing. Um, but I, I think too that the, um, yeah, the, the assumption of, of what allowed the scale to be tipped in either direction is really important too, right? Like in, in your example there, looking for predator prey connections versus cooperation connections can determine how you weight that scale either direction there. And then once you have that perspective shift about how, what assumptions are truly motivating these systems to change, then you might say, oh, like that other model metaphor or system was completely incapable of seeing this 
structure of data that I now know is is true in the system. So, and that that's a really important part too. I think in the scientific process, right, is a uh, is, is being humble and being ready to uh, abandon previous perspectives of our ideas, previous metaphors that are now um, not in line with truths that we're discovering. Um, so being able to update into a, a new um, into a new paradigm or way of thinking about relationality to the world. Um, and in particular, some, uh, one field of statistics really likes to focus on this paradigm of thinking, the uh, Bayesian paradigm, which is a specific subset of statistics, likes to really focus on subjective experience, motivating probabilities in the world. Um, so we, we never really go out into the world as completely inert scientists with no feelings or beliefs about how it works. We always go into it with some initial ideas or hypotheses about how we think the world works. And the Bayesian paradigm um, basically takes that scale of weighting our previous beliefs and sees if we accumulate data, if we should tip that scale and update our beliefs to a new posterior belief based off of the data. And it's uh, kind of can be thought of as a sequential process. As you go through your life, you change your own ideas and perspectives. And the same can be done for like a field of science as well. As you accumulate more data um, for or against previous paradigms, you can shift your metaphors to account for new characteristics that you see um, in order to update your beliefs into one that's uh, more in line with the reality that you see. Um, yeah, and, and so in that sense, I, the Bayesian paradigm, I think, is very um, human in the way it works. Um, yeah. I mean, it was created by humans, but yeah. uh, uh, it's, um, I think, a very like natural way of like how our own minds and brains maybe potentially work yeah. uh, in forming our reality and our world and our beliefs about it as well. And I, I like to what you said about shifting away from the uh, focus on purely prediction, because while we do want to predict the world in order to um, have a sense of comfort that we can have some sort of control over knowing what will happen, um, I think the more important thing more than anything is, is understanding how the systems work and how we relate to everything in the world around us. I think that that builds a stronger more complex narrative than just the the pure predictive measurement. I think the insights that we get from understanding the world around us is is much more important. Like you were saying, if we could, um, I guess, what would be the prediction there? If we, in your salmon story, we were focused only solely on predicting whether the boy would come back from um, the 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 other parallel world or not, and not focused on how the boy changed and how the boy relates to the salmons in that story, we'd be missing the whole point of mm -hmm. what was significant in that story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd mentioned like the something I get a lot of thought of, like the climate change and and how there's how we're relating to the crisis through you know, one number in particular, which is, you know, emerged uh, is the, you know, 1.5 degrees, which is, you know, there's all these warnings coming 
that uh, if we go above 1.5 degrees of global warming, then we're gonna, you know, we're gonna be in crisis and all this sort of thing. And I, I think the the science world has these climate models, and there's a, I'm not a climate climate uh, scientist, and neither am I a statistician, but. Um, my world of from from an ecological indigenous perspective i see this i see um the assumption there is that carbon emissions are creating global warming and that the temperature is increasing globally and that if our global temperature goes above 1.5 compared to pre-industrial levels, then there's going to be, you know, these climate crises. It's kind of the story that I hear. And so back to my mind of foundational thinking, I go, I see a number of things. One, if I just look at that, it's a very important number in a lot of people's minds right now because of the climate change. It's a very important number. So... I'm going, okay, well, it must be very important to understand it. And what are the assumptions there? You know, what does it mean? What is the confidence interval? Um, all these sorts of questions emerge in my mind about that very important number. So point number one is it, it's very important. The scientists are trying to create a story from all the climate models that they're looking at trying to predict what's happening in the future based on carbon emissions. Um, so the questions I go through, well, I, I can look up. I, uh, in our show notes, we'll have the IPCC's um, uh, report that's written right around you know the top the title of the of the report is you know global warming 1.5 degrees so it's a very important document i think to read because the 1.5 is a very important number in all of our lives no matter who you are so you know i encourage people to read that document to understand 1.5 but if i go from my indigenous lens on this first and then i'll get to the kind of just the numerical lens in a minute the indigenous lens is that i i if the trickster in me kind of sees this this fictional knob, like a thermostat knob that humans globally have their hand on it. We all have our, you know, humanity of 8.99 billion people have our hand on this magic knob, you know, Wizard of Oz knob, that uh, we can change uh, to... We have the power, we have the ability to adjust this knob and we want to keep it before below 1.5 and definitely below 2 degrees of global warming. It kind of, to me, I, it's kind of humorous that there, we think that humanity, we got ourselves into this problem, but we always have our hand on this knob, we can just click it back and we're going to be okay. That's kind of what I hear in that story. And it kind of raises some alarm bells that we're kind of implying that there is this knob and that there's these increments and that we can control it. And can we? 
Uh, that's my first question. Oh, and it and and if we think we can, there's there's a bit of arrogance there in my mind. And again, I get back to this idea of humility. If we develop a model, or we're using statistics, let's choose the more humble experimental design, or the more humble confidence intervals, or the more humble model. But and I mean by humble, humans' place in the world, we're being more humble about our place in the world and our abilities to predict the future about this world. And there might be other worlds, like in the Samarfrin story. So, um, so there's this idea of arrogance and humility that emerges out of this fictional knob, climate knob. Uh, and if I get back to my the numerical uh, side of it is like, we've back to the tricksters inverse schema law we're somehow we've got to this number of 1.5 where number one we're able to measure the global uh increase in temperature somehow and and the ipp ipcc reports there they do a very good job of uh, in all their modeling and calculations, and it's the it's the tra it's translating it to the general public that 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 I'm talking about is that how is it measured? What are the assumptions of these models? Um, being clear about them when they talk about 1.5, I really encourage people to put the confidence interval around it. It looks like they've got a 0.2 confidence interval, plus or minus 0.2, around 1.5. So explain to the public that, you know, when they do measure it, they might, it might be 1.7, it might be 1.3. There's, there's some humility there. And, I, and, I, and I'm imagining that that confidence interval, you know, is probably narrower than, than, than uh, in reality, but that's just my own, my own bias. But it gets back to something um, that we've talked about in a previous discussion, Jeff, is the fluency of the general public in its understanding of interpreting statistics. And if there's one number that we can practice on, I think it's 1.5. We should all have a very good understanding of 1.5, which means we need to have some basic fluency in statistics. And this is, you know, this isn't the indigenous side of me, it's the more scientific side of me, the mathematical sides that let's use this as a teaching moment because it's probably the most important number in our world right now about basic fluency and how to interpret it. Um, and it gets to the concept of normal distributions on a normally distributed um, um, set of data and this is an example of one where you've got a normal distribution where the global average is shifting higher by 1.5 degrees from pre-industrial levels to to now or in the future what is that shift of the normally distributed uh, data look like and what does it mean because not only does the mean shift 1.5 degrees the tails of the distribution shift as well um, and you know the concept of standard deviation does that widen or con contract so the height and width of that normal distribution really really gives us some insight to what the extreme weather is so i think there's a role for for statisticians to really help educate the public around interpreting 
what's going on here with the numbers. And my role in climate change is, is to, to bring in the indigenous perspective around humility and our relationship to the world, be more humble, to, to really understand the relationship with all of the natural world. And that, you know, for example, one of the, the lifeblood of our world, which is water, is alive, it's not dead. And our, our attitude towards the natural world will shift when we see water as alive because water unifies everything in the world. Everything in the world is unified by water. Water is always moving and connecting one part of the world to another. So as complex as the world is, I see water as a really good start to change our attitude and our how we treat it. Are we going to be the little boy that pokes at water and throws rocks in it and garbage and sees it as something only there for our use and not something for everyone else's use? We need to shift our attitude. So, yeah, that number is a very important number, and it's a good teaching moment for both of, both Western science mathematical view and also from an Indigenous view. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And thank you for bringing up this example, because I do think there's a lot of terminology that's packed into this number of... Uh, 1.5 degree shift in average temperature from pre-industrial times um, having potentially profound effects on the way humanity will continue to exist with climate change and on how much of a struggle it could be in the future is, is really an important one. Um, but in order to get to that number, a lot of hidden complexity um, that arises. Um, in particular, what this number is... Um, would be, I think, if we're at the IPCC is, is giving a confidence interval, which we'll talk about, is this 1.5 number would be called the point estimate. So the point estimate in this case here is um, based off a of statistical analysis, what is the best uh, guess of the average shift in climate temperature um, before things get to some level of catastrophe, let's say. And this has been determined by IPCC by uh, going through different uh, studies on the topic, I'm sure. Um, so with that number of 1.5, first comes the question of, well, where did that one come from in the first place? As we um, accumulate data about climate fluctuations, um, the scientists and statisticians who are working with them to model it will be interested in how much wiggle there is in temperature values. So how much uncertainty there is about what future temperatures might be. So as we take averages across a month, across multiple years of weather data on the temperature of the earth, we might see that there's fluctuations that cause us to be uncertain about what future values of that temperature might be. And so we might average and say, well, on average, we think the future value will be 1.5, but we know that it probably will be not 1.5, but something close to that number. We think there's a wiggle room around it where we have more confidence of capturing a projective future value within that interval. How big that interval needs to be is going to be determined by how much fluctuation or variance there is in the data itself, how much it varies from year to year, month to month, so on and so forth. So what a confidence interval does is it tries to capture these ideas of the point estimate of the interval 
and a variance, and it tries to accumulate this in such a way that we can um, try to have an interval that captures a range of poss possible future values um, that we have some level of certainty or uncertainty about. So that interval you mentioned of 0 0.2 could potentially uh, be the uh, margin of error or the interval component that'll give you a range of, let's say, 1.3 degrees Celsius to 1.7 degrees Celsius. So from 1.5 plus or minus 0.2. And this is the interval that I think the scientists are most likely to actually truly be interested in. The, the point estimate is almost certainly going to be wrong in the future because what's the chance we get it exactly correct of 1.5, right? It's nothing is is so deterministic in the world, especially when you're dealing with something as complex as climate change. Um, so scientists usually work with the confidence interval, but this number of 1.5 is the thing that gets reported because it's simple. It tells a simple narrative about what our best guess is, even though it's not necessarily going to be the truth in the future. So what's the discrepancy there? Why didn't um, why don't, doesn't the IPCC or other scientists report these confidence intervals? And I think the answer is because it, um, I think it would serve to probably confuse a lot of people hearing these terms used. And uh, rather than go the other direction, which is to just educate more people about statistical literacy and what these statistical terms mean and how to interpret them, they've gone the other route and just simplified the narrative that they put forward. Um, I think personally that this is uh, potentially could cause some distrust to arise from people as they see the future happen and they notice the number is actually 1.3 rather than 1.5. They might start to say, well, that number 1.5 is wrong. Why is science um, wrong? Should I continue to trust in it? And then the scientists might say, well, whoa, well, we always knew it could potentially be 1.3. We just didn't report that to the general public. That could be seen as like a distrustful dynamic within any relationship, including the public versus um, scientists. So I, I think fluency and education about statistics could allow for a more complex dialogue of what the scientists are actually using to measure climate change to be given to the public and for there to be more understanding around these metrics here. Um, and in particular, you're, you're drawing for people who will click in the show notes and uh, are able to access Michael's drawing. It's a knob like you might see on a um, laundry machine that goes from zero <laughs> to, uh, I think two degrees Celsius. So you can imagine it like turning up the temperature by that amount by rotating the knob. Um, that's an interesting, yeah, yeah, um, art piece because it, it implies that this single knob controls a whole complexity of of uh, parameters or relationships that affect climate change in the world. Um, and that knob is actually, I think, a really good metaphor for the one of the two core parameters that controls how we do statistics on averages. So that knob is going to be called. In statistics, the, the shift or the treatment effect for and basically moving a distribution of possible uh, temperature values where you're going to center that in terms of how much it's shifted from previous values. So on average, uh, the year 1850 experienced um, a temperature of, let's say, 23 degrees Celsius. 
And then we might say, well, in 2020, on average, we notice a uh, temperature across the earth of 25 degrees Celsius. So it's shifted the center of that previous distribution to by two degrees there. So it's moved the knob onto the two degrees Celsius mark, if you will. Um, that's one core parameter that we use statistics to estimate is how much do we think that knob has shifted from previous values, you know, two degrees in this case here, maybe it's zero degrees, um, but we need data to infer about that. And then there's another parameter that actually is really important in the generation of confidence intervals and in statistics, and that's um, variation. Um, so how much uncertainty is inherently present in the data caused by its natural fluctuation since it's random. Um, how much of that variation is present um, both in the 1850 distribution and in the modern day, let's say year 2020 distribution here. So this determines how often we see values that are dramatically different than the average values. So for example, in a, a distribution that has very low variance, it would be weird and let's say that's centered around 23 degrees Celsius, it would be weird to see values above 26 degrees Celsius or 20 degrees Celsius. And here I'm, I'm operating under assumption of normality there. Um, so in that particular characteristic of the normal distribution, it'd be weird to see values out of a plus or minus three degree range if you had very low um, variation. So a standard deviation in this case of one. In a different setting there, you can have the same distribution centered on that first knob there around 23 degrees Celsius, um, but it could have a very spread out distribution where the variance is extremely high and it wouldn't be unusual to see negative one degree Celsius or um, 57 degrees Celsius on this new distribution here because the data can potentially have extremely different values than the average. So in this high variation case here, it's very um, uh, difficult uh, in order to see if the center of the distribution on average has changed a lot from previous distributions because there's so much uncertainty present within the data itself here. So in the statistical world, we actually have two knobs that we're turning simultaneously in this case here. When we're working with averages, we're changing the center of the distribution where the shape is generally located and then we're also changing the shape itself, how spread out this distribution is with the second knob. Um, I guess we can call it the variance knob, if you will. Um, and then what's reported in the IPCC report is just that single knob, but the position in it um, could potentially be 1.5 or that interval estimate of 1.3 to 1.7. So um, it's ignoring the second knob, which is arguably almost more important than the first knob in some cases there. Is yeah, yeah. Now to have that whole complex picture painted, you really need both of those statistical parameters or knobs illustrated in order to get a better full picture of what's happening with climate change and how severe it is it. Yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's excellent. Like I'm glad you brought up the variability thing. Um, a couple of thoughts there is that I hope to encourage the media and also climate scientists um, and statisticians to encourage them to encourage the general public to do a bit more homework on that 1.5. So in the media, I would hope they would 
they would express those two knobs as well as as you did because it's a super important number we can't be lazy about trying to simplify it to the most simplified things and lose all lose its lose the importance of that number by just being too simple about it so encourage the media to be more rigorous about reporting around that number to tell basically to tell the bigger tell more story about that number tell you know tell tell the story of the variation tell the story of how confident we are in that number and where we are and all those sorts of things so that's the first point the second point is that i often hear when i talk to folks about climate change and in the debate is like i hear this in our world in if we look at it in geologic time there's always been times of of uh glaciation and and hotter times so there's nothing new about what we're experiencing that's so basically that's the climate change denial kind of core argument or assumption so that's their that's their assumption i'm I'm not here to argue it but what i am pointing out is that the ipcc report on 1.5 degrees they do talk about how they have dealt with natural variability around you know volcanic ash eruptions for example where you know if you look at the analysis of variance kind of approach you're trying to extract what the background natural variability is from what you're testing or your hypothesis right like so in this case with climate we're trying you're trying to extract the natural vac natural background variability due to glaciation, volcanic eruptions, whatever that's happened over geologic time. Um, you're trying to extract that variability out and concentrate on what has been caused by humans. The population of humans is growing from to you know almost 10, 10 billion coming up. So there's more people in the world affecting the world and what is the effect of that growing number of people on our world is what the climate scientists are trying to figure out so they have to figure out okay if people weren't here what would the world look like and now what does it look like with a growing number of people and how they're affecting the world and um so there is in statistics ways of teasing out that variability through statistics and good experimental design. So it's important, I think, to tell the story that yes, we have tried in the climate science world to identify what you're talking about, this geologic time effect. Yes, there there have been effects and we've tried to extract that out and separate it when we're talking about the 1.5. Um, so this whole idea of variability, like is not only what variability is what you explained as a second knob but what are the components of the variability the background variability that exists and our and we want to in our experimental design measure a particular effect so we have to be able to extract the the variation from that effect from the natural background variability so that story has to be told more I'm not to I'm not here to convince anybody it's just that I don't hear it enough I don't hear enough storytelling around this 1.5 number um, 
So, yeah. Yeah, that's... I'm... Go ahead, Catherine. Okay. Um, no, I just wanted to say that, like, I'm reminded um, of something that my high school biology teacher told us, which is statistics is lying with numbers. Um, and in a sense, this ties back into what you were saying at the beginning of our talk, Michael, about how um, there is a responsibility to having this knowledge, especially knowledge about statistics and how I think often we want a straightforward answer, but even the statisticians know that what you get from stats is not. And I feel like that's kind of like the trickster that you were talking about, Michael, that kind of sort of almost doubt or um, paradox that we have in our world or contradictions. And the fact that even though statistics, our statistical answer might be one thing, um, I'm also reminded of your art piece, um, Jeff, about how the average person isn't real, it's just a number. And that kind of ties back to this knob which it could be 1.5, it could be more, or it could be less. So I'm kind of wondering, like, you know, um, sort of, I guess, are we like fooling ourselves in a sense? Are we just be accepting or not accepting? Are we just kind of letting the sort of trickster of statistics get the better of us as we're trying to simplify things? Yeah, that's what the tricksters inverse schema law is is about, and and I am kind of being playful there when I talk about the tricksters inverse schema law, but it points to exactly what you're talking about: is that you know, are we fooling ourselves? Are we simplifying things to the absolute most simple model just so we can feel comfortable with our ability to predict the world? But in actual fact, the simplification has has just made us less able to understand the world. Um, it, it's a very good question. It's like in behind this whole 1.5 thing again is like what I see is that our relationship, you know, globally with nature, we've is become disconnected and we're not showing it enough respect, and thus the the climate and a lot of other things going on in the environment, like polluted water and mercury poisoning and chromium six in the water, and that's nothing to do with climate change, but it does affect us and it does affect the natural world so our we're like the little boy in that story not showing respect to nature one of the effects of it is this increase in temperature the other effect is birth defects and because people are drinking polluted water that whole picture is the really the big picture but we've narrowed down to something called 1.5 and carbon and once we unfortunately i I think we're under this false assumption that if we fix that, we're good again. No, we have to address the bigger problem around our disrespect for nature because the other problems are going to just keep cropping up if, because we're not addressing the bigger picture. So 1.5 and carbon and methane, that problem, that group of problems and our description and models about it, that's very important, obviously. And, and there's lots of great scientists doing great work there. Uh, my encouragement is to look at the bigger picture about our disrespect. You know, are we the little boy um, that was disrespecting salmon? So, yeah, that whole idea about fooling ourselves is that it's a great, 
prompt, Catherine. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think there, there's definitely a lot of quotes that go around in the statistics community about um, the usefulness of models. Um, there, a common one that I always quote is, um, all models are wrong, some are useful. Um, and I, I think that, <laughs> that's probably as true as it gets um, um, to believe that we'll ever arrive at an objective um, totality encapsulating truth that accounts for all of the complexities of this interacting system we call life here on earth is, is um, I think a, a little bit too overconfident and, and an impossible system to understand. It's a, um, if you remember those two dials I was talking about earlier, imagine an infinite number of those dials, but every time you turn one, all the other dials change too. That's yeah. probably a more, more representative <laughs> system. of that. If we want to buy that deterministic description, that's probably a more representative way of describing the world we live in. It's it's so complex and, and beautiful because of that. Um, in particular, two variables, I think, make me as a statistician scared for how complex the, the narrative can get. And that's any time you want to talk about space or you want to talk about relationships over time or, um, you know, forbid this happening, you want to talk about relationships over space and time at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, yeah, precisely. I mean, what doesn't change over time? What doesn't change over space? And what doesn't change over time and space, right? Like almost everything in some sense is coupled with this, this ultimate dependence structure, which violates the most core assumption in, in a lot of statistics, which is that we assume the, our observations to be independent from one another. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the idea is that like, oh, if you find some sort of structure like that, if you account for the structure with space or time accounted for, now we have independence once we've conditioned on this structure that we assume to, to be knowing in some form. Um, but yeah, to, that's, already to handle problems like that requires so much data, so much information and a, a lot of assumptions to tackle um, that it's, um, it makes us, uh, yeah, naturally raises the question, like, should we trust the models, especially since once you collect data and you publish your paper on it, you now have um, a trend that was only observed during the period in which you were collecting data. If your paper suggests that there's t uh, changes over time and space, um, then that inherently suggests that the relationship has continued to evolve since the paper has ended collect data collection. And that, now the problem, or the, rather I should say the system you're trying to understand is potentially anything but what it's described as in the paper. <laughs> it's now evolved into something else. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I, this, this all sounds, you know, like a, a bit pessimistic, but I, I think it allows us, it, it does open the door for us to actually, I think, tell stories, to tell more complicated and, and beautiful and interwoven stories about the world around us. Um, this isn't uh, me trying to say we should all give up on science and most certainly statisticians and that we're just merchants of uncertainty, but it's rather, I think, opens up the um, conversation about how science is a continuous process that needs to continue to update. Mm -hmm. There's really important um, important situations in the world that need to be understood in order to help all of humanity and everything here on earth, um, including climate science. And uh, with these complexities facing us, it's more important than ever to be open to um, alternative ways of viewing the world that we're in, 
alternative metaphors and ways of relating to the world and studying those and keeping an open mind about them. At the end of the day, that might, um, for me, that will definitely look like uh, me making models about the world and inherent in the structure of how all statisticians use statistics is this concept of measuring uncertainty. Um, we never say things in statistics that are deterministic, like this is the reality. We only say things like we're 95% confident that a reality might exist within this realm of possibilities there. Mm-hmm. And that's very specific language, you know, um, like there was a confidence interval given and it's not a probability in the sense that I'm 95% sure that I'm correct. It's actually saying if I repeated data analysis thousands and thousands of times, the long run proportion would capture the truth in 95% of those data sets. But in any particular statistical conclusion, in any particular confidence interval, it either captures the truth that will be or not. Um, there is, mm-hmm. It's all or nothing kind of thing. And, and so that's, that's another important thing too, is that uh, we should be um, statisticians and scientists should understand that the, the tools that we're using to um, make metaphors about the world um, have their own limitations. Um, they're either right or wrong. They either uh, miss the truth or they don't. If we knew the truth um, in the first place to determine that statement, then we wouldn't do science or statistical modeling then. We'd already know it. But here we are trying to make use of how well we can understand the properties of uncertainty in order to make um, better better to, um, um, remarks about the world around us. And I mean, I think like a big part of modeling and I guess to have a a somewhat accurate representation of the world is so that we can make decisions. Right. Like, I think that's that's the main point. And I think that like, you know, um, Michael, your your drawing of like the knob and this like metaphor of the knob, um, you know, implies that we have control over the situation, right? And if we act in a certain way, we can change things. And I think that that's probably like um, a pretty good like metaphor for people to like feel empowered, right? Like going forth with climate change and stuff. So I guess like once we like get beyond like when we I think when we realize that like so like no, no models are true, we start to think about like, well, what models are like sort of motivating and like what you know like having this or or change our behavior in a way that we that we think is good I guess it becomes more moral and pragmatic I suppose but you know like with this view of water being alive or not it changes how we interact with water and whether we respect it or not right so I think that's a big aspect of of models and 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 their metaphors is that their metaphors determine like how we relate to things because we do it through that metaphor right Um, yeah yeah Yeah, it's a very good point and it it kind of back to the I guess one of one of my assumptions is that Western science offers a lot of great things and there's a lot of great people working in that field. Indigenous science and knowledge offers a lot of great things and there's a lot of great people working in those worlds. And if you think of those two of two Venn diagrams, we have two sets, the indigenous world and the Western world. And right now they're, they're neither in union or intersection. And what, what I'm proposing and what Jess and I are writing about and what Jeff is talking about kind of where is that intersection or union of those two worlds 
we need that strength of the union or intersection to to solve the world's problems. It's not going to happen independently anymore. So that means Western science in particular has to be more humble and adjust its way of doing things. Um, that's one message. The other message is that on the positive side here, the 1.5 gives people focus. The world is so complex and these climate crisis and environmental crisis are so overwhelming. People are experiencing grief and fear. They, and when you're in an emergency situation, you need to focus people's energies. And it's hard to focus when you've got this very complex natural world and this increasingly complex human-created world. Um, so the real value of that 1.5 number is focusing people's energy. So that's, that's, that's really good. And then what statisticians can, can offer is models that help us take away that fear of the world and, and give us a way to operate in a model to simplify the world a bit. But the most important thing is it has to be a humble model and we have to know the assumptions. They have to be expressed over and over and over again. In, in Indigenous storytelling, repetition is super important. We got to keep repeating the confidence intervals. We got to keep repeating that uh, the 1.5 address has they've addressed natural variability. We have to keep repeating that we this isn't a deterministic model. It's a you know we have to keep repeating this stuff. Uh, otherwise, people get lulled into what Catherine was talking about, fooling ourselves that we understand what's going on, <laughs> because that's that's a bad that's worse. It's like, you know, we've got a crisis. We fooled ourselves into thinking it's X, Y, and Z that's creating it. And we just have to solve that and we're done. You know, no, but just, no things are changing over time and space. And, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I find statistics is very valuable. I'm encouraging the more, you know, less deterministic, more humble tools of the, of the toolkit of statisticians and for them to tell stories because you're looking at the data, you're very intimate with the data. There is a story there, and you can say you're, you know, you, you know, it's your best guess, you know. But you, you're that's the back to the elders' advice. What are you going to do about it once you've got that knowledge? You have a responsibility. So, tell the story. Be courageous. You know, you're you're studying it. No one else is. So, be courageous. Yeah. On that note, too, I think it's actually really important that um, um, statisticians and scientists uh, do project the knowledge that they gain about the world in ways that are readily digestible in as complex a form as possible to the public. Um, like my favorite statistician that actually got me into this field and like fired me up to like want to do this for the rest of my life um, gave presentations where he, he did not present a single confidence interval or a single p-value, which are two different tools in the statistical um, um, tool set to determine truth when using data. So he didn't directly use these two core components of, of statistics. He used graphics and well-done, well well-executed, colorful animations to elicit the story um, that he was seeing when he was running these complex models and mm -hmm. complex hypothesis tests in the background. And so I think 
in that he was able to tell a really beautiful and nuanced story that gave people understanding that was so much deeper than any singular p-value or confidence interval can give. When you read a, um, a scientific paper in a journal, though, you might see that these are often the metrics that get thrown around in parentheses as if you can skip over them. You know, <laughs> the p-value of less than 0.05 in parentheses and, and you just skip over that and keep reading the conclusion because that's the metaphor part is usually what, you know, might be more important in any given moment. So in that, and all I am saying is that like, not that we should abandon these metrics, but that um, it is actually really important to me. And I, and I think more and more scientists and statisticians are realizing it's more important to have a way of listening to the world around us listening to how much complexity the data needs to elicit from a good researcher, building models around that complexity rather than forcing the complexity you want there to be, um, generating conclusions using these, these metrics, and then um, not ending the analysis there, but going back to what does this look like? What are the stories that we can tell from this using data visualization and, and good communication with the world around us? I think that um, that pipeline there captures the ability for Western science to be more metaphorical and to be more open about um, where we are confident or not confident in um, many different contexts there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good description. So out of that, I think like just for trying to answer your question around metaphor model, a metaphor tries to tell a story about the model and a metaphor also helps people focus given the complexity of the model. But metaphors do have their own inherent danger. Right. They they have their like assumptions about like what are the rules of relating to each other in this metaphor, you know? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, you kind of just have to have that for a while and just see how that works out for you. And then modify yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Now the trickster is the one that's shape-shifting through that linkage between model and metaphor and even the creation of the model. The mm -hmm. trickster always wants to keep always wants to keep you humble. Mm -hmm. Just when you think you've got it, the trickster will come and because things are changing over time and space. And when I say time and space, I mean multiple worlds and multiple time dimensions. Mm -hmm. You have that in, it gets, you know very complex but a metaphor helps people focus especially in an emergency which we are in now but people need to know what the limits of that metaphor are they definitely do and that's the role of, of um, the media and statisticians just keep reminding keep repeating here's the confidence arrow here's the variation here's the assumptions you got to remember those we can't be lazy we can't just talk about 1.5 without any of that yeah. And yeah, that, I mean, that's the thing, like the, the the other thing is like what we're talking about, too, is storytelling is like interpretation of data, too. And that that should be like a collective and inclusive process, right, of like interpreting. Yeah. That's really be informed by your background, like metaphors from your culture and stuff. Right. Like, so, yeah, yeah. And I feel like you can tell so many stories with the same data set. Yeah. It's like. Because for me, it's like the, you know, here's the metaphor. Everyone, we're all sitting around a campfire in a circle. We all see that fire different ways, but it's still a fire. Mm -hmm. But that fire is telling us different stories 
simultaneously because we see different things. We experience the smoke different ways. And so, you know, the, the, the data is the fire, but we see it. I, I think that's good. I think that's healthy. I think we have to, we have to be able to embrace that there are different possibilities, multiple truths that come out of it, but we're all related to that fire somehow. Mm -hmm. That's important. So, yeah. Well, we are approaching well after, I think one and a half <laughs> hours, but um, as always, uh, thank you again to the both of you. Um, I really love the story of the salmon prince, Michael and Jeff. It was so great to hear about statistics from someone who actually studies it. I feel like I actually understood more about like, what am I doing with my data? Um, and as always, we like to wrap up by asking our guests what they've learned from each other. But um, from this conversation, I'm gonna put a little twist on it and ask what have what knowledge have the each of you gained from each other and what are you gonna do with that knowledge going forward? Well, I think the one of the main inspirations for me of this has been uh, being hopeful about statistics, which is the underpinning of Western science, like, like uh, hopeful that it can tell stories and 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 embrace this idea that there are multiple truths and and that there's real beauty in that. Like I hear that from Jeff, like he really sees beauty in the in our world, and that I think he's he sees possibilities of being able to convey that either through rigorous statistics or through storytelling of the data so that, that makes me hopeful and i hope that that he can inspire his colleagues uh to to do that so yeah yeah and as for myself i uh i i've had this uh both in today's conversation and uh, previous conversations with Michael and previous conversations I've heard him have with, with Jess <laughs> um, is that uh, the power of storytelling is 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 cannot be emphasized more because storytelling I think really is the way that humans relate to the world. It is the things that we truly remember, um, and and the power of stories and the metaphors that are inside of it. I think really stick with me more when I hear Michael tell stories that accompany all of, of the um, different ideas that he's eliciting. So mm -hmm. I, I think that, that that's really a, a really key takeaway for me is, is that uh, I learned how powerful storytelling and, and metaphor is from Michael. And I, it makes me just that much more excited to ingrain those in my own research and other people's research. If they consult me for any help on that mm -hmm. is, is how important it is to keep a humanistic element in what we're doing in science and to remember that, that at the end of the day, we are, we are human and that it's important to remember our values and what that means. Well, thank you both. And we'll leave it on that beautiful note. Thank you. Hamia. So like something that I was thinking about last night about this episode is honestly, I, I can see the connections between um, blue ecology and indigenous knowledge to honestly how we do a lot of science. Like I'm thinking back to how, you know, we're trying to find life outside of earth and 
what do a lot of people look for? It's water. So I can see that connection being formed. So, I mean, this might be optimistic, but I don't think it's going to, it's going to require change, but I think the foundations are already there. Um, and same thing, like most of our physical bodies are made of water. Most of the earth is water. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, I think, like, I think what, what is um, important to think about with blue ecology is, is like water as the connecting thread, right? Because I mean, for one, yes, like water as being animate is super important to Michael. But I think that like, also what that allows you um, is, is this sort of like, you know, this world, this ecosystem, or these diff distant planets or ourselves, like we think of all of these things as distinct, right? But then when we bring in water as this like alive thing, like that's part of the system, it, it feels like it connects everything to this point of like almost being like a higher order individual. Cause like, you know, I was really thinking like more about what really um, would the implications be of embracing like that water is alive um like how would that change our science and originally i was just thinking like all it would do is like change how we treat water if it was alive we would treat it probably with like the respect that we treat other alive things with but it really you know as i thought about it more i just i think it like really does kind of change like how we sort of chunk the world <laughs> and how we see like distinctness right like if water is there to connect everything you don't see things as distinct and separate from each other and I think that that is something that me and Michael had talked about too in our paper so I think um that's one part of these of, of changing the model is that it changes what you think is distinct parts yeah that is so true and I think you know, it is helpful that like for our brains because we do it so naturally to compartmentalize things like that's why we have you know our um you know taxonomic like hierarchies and stuff it's even though it's so not a clear cut between one species from another that's why you have hybrids sometimes but i think it is part of human nature that we just like nice neat little boxes and it makes sense um, survival, like evolutionary speaking, um, especially when you need to make decisions for your own preservation. Um, but I don't know, I think kind of like what we were talking about um, in terms of water, whether or not water has a spirit and like how that can change our thinking. I think that could also expand to other uh, parts of an ecosystem that we think aren't alive and yet there's still I guess the definition of alive as Michael mentioned is far broader in um, indig indigenous knowledge and I don't know that sentence led me to think about how in an ecosystem everything impacts each other right so like beavers building dams that's a structure they have made 
but it impacts the flow of water. It creates ponds. It creates an entirely new ecosystem. It, you know, gets, they cut down trees that, yes, those are alive, but also the trees hold, you know, the soil together with their roots. And I think this interconnectedness is a huge part of ecology. And I think there is potential for so much overlap with indigenous knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think like, yeah, you're touching on an important aspect of what that does, that uh, shift in thinking about things as animate uh, gives agency to things, right? Like that's the the main difference instead of them just being uh, these inert objects. I mean, we know that like, yeah, things that we don't consider alive do have impacts. But I guess there's maybe a more subtle shift of like thinking about it as an agent. And I and I think like, again, this does um, have huge implications for uh, how we go about treating them, right? Like these these things that like in I, I mean, one of Michael's main critiques, and, and I agree with him, is that like the models that we have in Western science a lot of times put us in an extractive form of relationality to the world because we're like, if these things aren't animate or aren't don't have agency, like they're just objects for us to impose our agency on or to use, right? Like what else, what other kinds of desires can a thing have if it's not, you know, an agent, like it's just an object um and so i think that you know some that's that's important to think about and then also uh this started you know making me think again about donna haraway who's like my favorite philosopher of science who who is a biologist and she wrote this um companion species manifesto which is a way of thinking about how to sort of I mean I would summarize it as like a way of thinking about like how to give agency to objects without anthropomorphizing like projecting ourselves and um and but there's this one line in her in her uh, book that says that relationality should be the smallest unit of analysis and I think that that is like something that Michael is is trying to bring up as well because um, you know, he's talking about, you know, the salmon prints and he's like, well, we're just like <laughs> Western scientific like analysis of that would be like, what species of salmon is there? How many times does the rock hit the thing? Um, there's no, there's not really this like aspect of like, what does this mean for us and how we should act to the rest of the world like it's it's not like so much of a relational interpretation of facts like it's just a descriptive de interpretation of facts you know what I mean yeah and I think this ties back to the idea of storytelling um and how um kind of what we mentioned at the end of the episode all of us were talking about how to tell the story from our data rather than trying to find data that fits our story and this reminds me back to um michael's story about balloons and the eagles and how um kind of changing our mindset um kind of because i think as i was listening to that story i was thinking like oh that's interesting maybe it's like i was thinking what Michael's thinking maybe it's too big. 
big for it. Maybe it's a diseased fish. And then when the eagle came, I was thinking, okay, maybe it got rid of it. Like the loon got rid of the fish that it caught because it's likely to attract a bigger predator rather than the cooperation that Michael suggested. So I think there's this um, sort of, I guess, shift that needs to happen. Because um, I think my line of thinking as someone who is trained in Western science is trying to fit that story into one that makes sense with something I'd already kind of not new, but like suspected, which is a predator prey interaction rather than a mutualistic interaction that Michael suggested instead. Yeah, it's so true. And it, and it does really take like, I mean, it takes good storytelling to, to change your perspective and to, and it takes so many different perspectives to interpret data differently. Like that's the thing. And, and I mean, yeah, like it, you know, yeah, Michael's observation probably, yeah, like could benefit from being verified and put into an experimental setting and all this stuff. But I think like at the same time, um, the, what that did for Michael was like, um, I guess like shift his own view of nature, like in that moment to be like, nature is not like red in tooth and claw. Like nature is like this cooperative thing and these things are looking out for each other. And I think that, um, I don't know, there's some times where I'm like, the interpretation of facts um, is is so hard to, to say that it's objective, right? Like there's like this the same data and we talked about this, like the data doesn't speak for itself. Um, I think, I don't know if I told this story on the podcast before, but I was um, at a conference about communicating novelty and controversy in science. And it was, and this, and this guy was like, I was, he said he was on the Joe Rogan show. Joe Rogan got all of his science correct that, that did show that like sometimes vaccines um, can create more virulent viruses in a very specific contexts. Um, so Joe Rogan got all of his science correct, but then his interpretation was that we shouldn't get vaccines, right? And so the, the thing is, is that like, I think scientists do think that the data will speak for itself if we communicate the data well enough, but we're not taking this extra step of being like, well, what does it mean? Because we're trying to remove subjectivity from the process of science, right? But I think that if we don't do that, someone else will do that. Like, and also we don't have to think about like what things mean and we miss out on that beautiful meaning making aspect of science, right? <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. it's a beautiful thing. And. I mean, this definitely ties back to what Michael said, and this is a line that I think will resonate in my mind for a long, long time, is that there is responsibility when it comes to knowledge. And I can see that as, you know, our role as scientists, as science communicators, that not only do we state, like, the the facts given by the data, but also, like, as you mentioned the meaning or like the best way to interpret this given the context used and I mean as a personal belief of mine I think that everyone in a K-12 education should get 
like should be required to take a statistics course over being required to take calculus. But that's a whole kettle of fish that I won't get into. But yeah, because there's so much when it comes to interpreting data that you don't really get from reading an article or hearing a news story or honestly even talking to someone, even if they are a scientist, because I think, I don't know, because maybe again, it's like a human thing where we want a straightforward answer to basically life. But as I always tell my students, life is complicated. Yeah, right. And statistics is nice because it it it, it can like it can have these beautiful patterns emerge out of what seems like complete chaos and complexity, right? Like, um, which is so awesome. But I think that like the aspect that Michael, I mean, I talked to Michael's chief um, about our paper and about like these concepts a little bit and what his, what his chief had said um, was sort of, I mean, we were talking about my research on bees and, and just the way that he would ask me about it. He's like, well, what, what can the bees teach us about how to, how to be, <laughs> how to be better. Right. Like, and that's just, um, I've never really been asked that, but I think that that's this, like this missing piece that like, I think we gear away from because it seems sort of like subjective or overly spiritual or something like you know something that seems anti-science but I think it's something complementary right where it's like we can take these observations and we can be introspective about how we are like in the world and you know if we're being good relatives to the rest of the ecosystem I mean that's something that Michael and his his chief all are always asking is like how can we learn from these things about how to be better like for them and for ourselves and I think that maybe that I, I don't know what that would look like in in terms of like how to how to do that with like statistics do we do that with the tools of, of western science or do we do, do we do that by like tapping into this other aspect of ourselves that we've we've sort of like let get weak because <laughs> there's not much of a place for that in science but like something that I think also could connect us to people outside I mean to bring it to science communication right like this meaning making aspect is something that can connect us to the community of people we're communicating the science to we say this is what I found like what do you think it means like <laughs> and you can you know work together to think about like what it means and I and I think that's an important you know because yeah, like scientists have one interpretation of what certain facts mean. And usually it's like relating it to other, um, you know, uh, other studies in the field, not really about what it what it means for us as humans and, and how to how to be better humans, you know? Yeah, I, don't, I think it's something that we do naturally, at least I do that, like, even the two of us as scientists, you can't, we're human, there's no escaping emotions. And, you know, our meaning making, we could relate it to scientific fact, but I think it is also helpful, like you said, to relate it to how we are taking it, I guess, into ourselves, into our lives, which reminds me about, you know, I, I don't believe in any like DDs or anything. And like a question I've gotten is like, like how, like, isn't that so bleak? And I'm like, well, no, because 
and like they'll bring up like you know statistical facts about like because then that just means everything's by chance because the chances of you know the big bang happening and this planet being formed are so minute and yes those are what are we, what we consider to be the likely is scientific um rationale behind um how this world this universe came to be and how i always felt about that is that yeah, it's, yes, you're right. It's a small, tiny little chance that the Big Bang happened, that all the pieces were in place for this planet to happen. All my ancestors before me got together and had children that led me to here. It's such a minute chance. But my meaning that I take from that is that it means what is actually impossible if my existence, despite how small it is, is possible and that gives me hope and that's the meaning i take from all these scientific facts yeah that that is beautiful catherine i i think that's like yeah it's funny because like this our our scientific thinking is its own aesthetic in a way right like we think that's beautiful we think that chaos ascending into order is something beautiful right like um and sometimes that's hard to communicate. I know Richard Dawkins gets in arguments with people too, like that people think it's bleak and he's like, well, why? It's actually like um, this beautiful thing because it's so rare. And yeah, I mean, it, it ultimately, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an aesthetic thing at the end of the day in terms of like what interpretation like is appealing to us right and I don't know I'm trying to think about like how to do science in a very 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 inclusive way um that can involve like these different interpretations if people want that doesn't like get in the way of how of like the accuracy of science right and so and I and I do think that's possible because I think people can interpret it in whatever way they want without it like I guess it changes like what kinds of predictions you can make but I mean even I don't know the, the world is so complicated <laughs> so the, the idea of like being able to make predictions at all like that was something I was thinking like we would talk about a little bit more of just like are our models useful to make predictions when they are a lot of times simplifying things a lot to the point of like changing how they like not not accurately representing the complexity of the world can those models still be predictive and it's like they are a lot of times and that's what's like so crazy to me um but I don't know what what were your thoughts on on the models and the assumptions and stuff like that yeah I mean um speaking to kind of what Jeff has mentioned about models and like, you know, you always in a, in a world that is constantly changing over space and time, you have to constantly shift your models in any direction because the, um, the model that you created is not going to be the most accurate model, basically like a second later, because something has changed in the world. Um, but I don't know. I I'm thinking also to Jeff's art piece that I alluded to, but we'll link it in the show notes of you know that person bursting out of a column. How the average is never going to be real. How and 
I guess this ties back into the idea of models being metaphors. A model's never going to be a one-to-one translation of real life, but it's a way for us to better, I guess, make the connections in our brain. But we, as Michael mentioned, like we need to be humble in that we can't assume that our models are reality because they are metaphors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I and I think that like the it is important to think about how those do influence the type of way you can relate to things in the world. Like that that is something like that I really took away from this. And and you know, I've I've written a commentary before on metaphors about microbes, like about like antibiotic resistant microbes, um, and how like we have these metaphors that are like very like war and uh, enemy oriented and that it frames how we relate to microbes in that storyline of like, right? You know, we're like, we have to kill these enemies. And and, and so it ignores, it, it frames all microorganisms as enemies and that we have to like kill them when it's more complex than that, right? Like there's, there's like, it's about balance of the ecosystem and it's about the evolution, like, you know, there, there will always be antibiotic resistant bacteria. There's not a single enemy because it's like a process of like that, um, that always will keep creating this if we keep relating to them this way. And so I think that that's something to, to think about all, all the time is like, how are our models? Cause I think we think about that with metaphors. Like it's very obvious with metaphors, but um, not so much with models. And I think it's just, you know, being conscious of like, how is this model or metaphor shaping like how I'm relating to these subjects of the metaphor and to the rest of the world. And that that's, again, bringing this like relationality as the smallest unit of analysis, like into the picture, you know, and maybe it's storytelling. I don't know, like, because I, I, I think that like having alternative stories maybe of, of, of models uh, and what to do with them might be might might just um highlight this multiple truths thing that Michael is talking about because I, I don't know if we really got to how how to really um embrace multiple truths and multiple perspectives. Uh the campfire analogy at the end was really good because it's like mm-hmm. it really highlights that like you can multiple truths arise when you have multiple perspectives, right? Yeah. And um... This arises, again, someone who studies animal behavior, just to the concept of the umwelt, which, you know, what does the animal that you're studying, how does it perceive the world? And I was reminded of that during the salmon print story, because in that story, you know, the salmon are basically humanoids in their world. And I'm always, you know, constantly thinking about like, I study animal behavior, but I will never truly know what's going on, but I can kind of figure out, or at least to my best guess that, you know, if a mouse is running away from me, it's probably not happy, (laughs) but who knows, maybe that mouse just really wanted to go for a good run and is practicing for a marathon, you know? (laughs) Um, So the idea of like bringing it back to like the campfire story that everyone has a different perspective of the same event and how something might be positive to one person, but could be negative to another, depending on 
our lived experiences. Um, I saw this post on, I don't know, I think it was like Tumblr years ago of like, well, we always associate birthday cakes with celebration, but like when you're writing, you can totally twist it into like a sad thing if your character, I don't know, had a bad breakup or something on their birthday and now they forever associate birthday cakes with pain and sorrow. And so, yeah, I think it's important to bring in multiple perspectives and through storytelling, I think we can tell different stories from the same data to get a full picture. It's kind of like having know, multiple witnesses to the same event because we can get a clear picture that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, cause, cause I think the thing is like, um, this is something I was talking to Jeff about after is just that um, our subjectivity comes in with like what we foreground and what we background. Right. Like, so from the very beginning, like the things that we think are salient to pay attention to um, and, and record and observe, or at the end, like the, you know, I mean, I'm experienced this, experiencing this with writing up my third chapter now of like, I have thousands of genes that seem important and certain ones stand out to me more than others. And it's like, you have to fight that urge to, to craft like a, a narrative that's, that's one that just confirms your beliefs, right? Because it's like, you know, you, you, you're aware that like the things that are salient to you in the data are the things that like confirm your, your existing beliefs. So it's, I think that's why we just always have to have these, yeah, outside interpretations. And I mean, this is what me and Michael, our paper, like, we, we are proposing to change like how scientific papers are written. And one of the sections we want to be added is this outside interpretation of the study um, in every paper, because it's just a way of doing exactly this, where it's just like, you know, as somebody who's not in biology, but is, you know, a chief or something like, cause his, his um, elder actually like did this for our paper. Like, what do you think about our paper? Or I had a physicist look at our paper. It was like, what do you think about this? Like, and so, I think that, you know, for one, that will uh, help us get a more complete picture, right, of like looking at this campfire from multiple angles. But it also like will on a meta level, like get to this important aspect of like relationality and finding meaning together and building connections with people outside of our field and just focusing on like connections um, between people, between ideas instead of about difference, you know, which is something that I think that, you know, I, I've learned a lot from Michael over time is just and is is kind of more in line with how I think in general and the more I guess a more feminine perspective is about sameness instead of like difference between things you know yeah um and well I think you just again as we've done many times during our recaps reiterated the premise of this podcast but it's yeah it's just so true and I think there's so much benefit that we can have to just shifting our thinking a little different um like not like it doesn't have to be like a whole radical change of a field though it could be but like just a tiny little shift can open the doors to like new possibilities and I think I'm remembering like some stories about people teaching children to draw and how there's how the kids tend to be way more um, like creative when they're first drawing a flower 
but then it all kind of ends up being very kind of co not coherent but like um it all ends up being very formulaic once as the kids get older and I can see that kind of similarly in science where we have for good reason you know these laws these really strong theories that hold up over time but I do think we should reassess them, not in the like proving them wrong, but just seeing what are we missing from these um, sort of foundational um, concepts. Yeah, because that's the thing, right? Like, is like we talked about with like the average is kind of not describing anything, right? Like these theories are, or these models are wrong, but useful. These theories are like, not like, you know, I think a lot of of the of not necessarily the problem but just the difference between how western science is done and and i guess sort of this like indigenous epistemology is just like that we're seeking like universal truths we're seeking laws that relate to everything or you know what i mean instead of um taking like multiple seemingly even contradictory things it's and i guess it's like what what do we do with the outliers right like we could remove them <laughs> and be like yeah we everything's like kind of making sense or we can like try to understand the context in which like this outlier could happen the context in which the average is happening and the you know so it's it's like um I guess again like this idea of like if we are to embrace multiple truths we can't be in this search for universal truths we have to be very local about our understanding of stuff and 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 it's it's a trade-off right because then you will get this more like complex model of small and less generalizable phenomenon um but you know maybe you'll understand that little thing and why it happened well but i i, I do think it's because we want to treat these models as as things that are very predictive right so that's that's why we'll oftentimes be looking for like universal rules that that we can like rely on that will create certain outcomes you know yeah and again it makes sense for taking action like um like we talked about on the episode that having that point or that 1.5 number is something to focus on it helps orient people it gives people a goal which is useful when you're in a time where things are very much uncertain, there's a lot of stuff changing all the time. But yeah, I think I think there needs to be a balance between kind of getting people something easy that they can focus on, but also enabling them to understand why we're focusing on this. Like as uh, we talked about with Jeff and Michael, like how we can explain that temperature shift of uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius, whatever the confidence interval is, and explaining that background and that story of how we got to that number, which I think could actually be really compelling because as we talked about a lot in science communication, at least the two of us have, and with the other members of SciComm at UCR, like the average person is not stupid. I don't think we need to dumb it down to one number I think most people can probably understand a range it's like I mean we see it every day like I'm applying to jobs right now um that I hopefully will get after I finish my degree 
Um, but and like even your salary generally isn't one number. It's a range of numbers dependent on your experience. So, yeah, I think so much of it, again, is I think the humility that Michael mentions. It's like, yes, we we know things as scientists, but we're not necessarily more knowledgeable than our audiences that we're trying to talk to. Yeah, I, I, I'm really glad that you brought that up because that, that was actually one of my major complaints at this same like com communication conference on like controversy and novelty. It was like the message that they were trying to say was like, make the story really simple and, you know, uh, so that people can understand, like assuming that people aren't in, aren't smart. Like and it was kind of I was just like, well, why can't we just make complexity sexy? Like, you know, like, um, because I think people can, you know, people don't want like a boring story. Like, you know, they want like. Yeah, no, sorry to cut you off, but I'm thinking yeah. like, you know, I have so many friends that love fantasy. I love fantasy. Those yeah. books are yeah, And there is so much detail to keep track of. People can handle complex things, yeah. whether or not they are real or fictional. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, I don't know, okay, when we're thinking about storytelling and stuff, like, because, you know, I'm glad you brought up the science communication aspect, because I wanted to talk about how amazing, like, the way that Michael talks about concepts is is through a storytelling mode and same with his elder like when we were talking um I you know they start telling a story and I'm like I don't know where it's going but I know it's going to be important and then like they tell the story and have you like experienced the truth that they're trying to like you know get across um and and so it's almost like you come to the conclusion that they want you to come to through the way that they tell the story and I think that's like so important and useful for thinking about science communication is like and and this is why you know because Michael being a poet this is what poetry is too right it's it's uh it's showing, not telling, right, through a story so that the the actual listener is getting this experiential knowledge through the story and coming to these conclusions through the story like themselves. Instead of being like, hey, this means this. It's like, here's the story. And then at the end, the conclusion is like, you know, uh, you know, for more for the, the salmon prince, like the conclusion is like respect all these like animals. Right. Like but it, it's um, I think we could really benefit from doing storytelling like that, where it's not you know, we, we talk about storytelling and science communication of just like structuring like the um the background of the study is the intro and then you know this hero's journey thing that we we talked about you know a lot on the previous episode but i think that this the the aspect of storytelling that is like what is the moral of the story <laughs> and that is a part that i think that michael has got nailed and um that we don't usually think about again right because we're not thinking about what does this mean to us <laughs> mm -hmm. and I mean, more often or not in our discussion sections, there really isn't, it's never really clear cut, at least from my experience writing and reading papers, because you never want to say with certainty and it's like, oh, you know, our data suggests that this is probably this phenomenon or that it supports this hypothesis, but it's never very definite which I think is ironic considering how much 
science is present presented as a very definitive thing. Yeah, totally. But yeah, we have been talking. We've been recapping for like forty minutes. I know. <laughs> we need to cut this down. It Sorry, Joshua. All important. <laughs> And I mean, you know, I could talk about this forever. I mean, my paper. It, it was such a good episode, though, and it was so thought provoking. And just again, it was so nice to hear about stats from like someone who actually does stats. Yeah. While I'm sitting here, like trying to run my R code, like please work. Yes. I know I'm supposed to do this because of like various reasons. Do I really know the? Do I know the reasons? I kind of know the reasons, mostly because uh... I've been told to do this. I feel you because everyone does it this way <laughs> oh man yeah um, I he's so good at communicating stats um yeah anyways that's interesting <laughs> yeah right making stats sexy um and I mean it was I was I don't know partially too because of Michael storytelling and the, the blending right of the two so mm -hmm. anyways once again crossing the Klein has created um, yeah find a good cutoff spot Joshua <laughs> I don't really know how to end this <laughs> see ya <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by SciComm at UCR you can find out more about us at SciComm.ucr.edu and special thanks to our producer Joshua Rieger our wonderful guests and you listeners we'll see you next time on our journey across, across the, the Klein, Klein.